Talk Therapy CBT, a conversation about educating, helping, and connecting individuals to the world of psychology. This podcast is supported and produced by Inner Balance Psychology Center. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Raffa, and join with me today is my co-host, Anthony Dana. How are you doing today, Anthony? I'm doing great. And do you know what this podcast is? This is number 10. We are now in double digits, Dr. F. We made it to 10. Wow. I'm very excited about that. And our downloads keep going up, so that's a good thing. I made a prediction. Yeah. 2000 by August 5th, by this Ooh, Friday. By this Friday. So that's a... Uh, I think we're over 1600. So I mean, yeah. we're getting there pretty close. Yeah. All right, so we have an agenda today. Do you want to tell everybody what our title is today? Yeah, so today's topic or title is The Psychology of Sports. And as we always begin with a quote, I'm going to give you my quote. Mm -hmm. And you tell me your interpretation of it and how you read it, and I'll do the same for you. Sounds good. So my quote is, I've missed more than... 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. That's why I succeed. And that individual was Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I love that quote. I've heard that one several times before. So, yeah. Um, so you're wondering what I think about that, right? Yeah. yeah. So what, what, what do you take from that? Well, I often reference this, not word by word verbatim quote, but with people in therapy who have very unrealistic expectations of themselves and fear of failure. You know, people have this fear of failing and very distorted beliefs and opinions on success and failing, failing is necessary for success. And Michael Jordan talks about his stats with that, how many times he failed and failed and failed and kept pushing through in, you know, with perseverance in order to be successful. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And just in life, many people are afraid to try and whether they're afraid of failure and no one is going to succeed right away. I mean, you know, it depends on what it is, but I mean, if it's something is as, you know, grandiose as NBA basketball, for crying out loud, or, or, you know, like writing a bestseller or making a movie or something, you know, something, or, you know, like designing something, you know, ridiculously abstract, you know, it, it's not going to just like, you know, happen. No, uh, yeah. Right. Thomas Edison said, I think it was the quote. It was, it was, again, I'm ad living, but it was something along the lines of it took me to, to produce the condescent light bulb. He tried and he, somebody said, you know, he tried and failed a hundred times before he got it right or something like that. He goes, no, no, I just came up with a hundred ways not to <laughs> produce a condescent light bulb. Like that's, you know, but it, you know, yeah. you know, failure is success practice. Uh, it really is. How yeah. you want to, you know, turn it and also Michael Jordan characteristic of of what motivated him he would look for things and he would hold grudges to and again this is his psyche this made him work and it's not going to work for everybody but you know he still I think it was his hall of fame speech and he still had something <laughs> like like not nasty but just kind of like a little jab at his high school coach for cutting him from the varsity team when he was a freshman you know I mean so you know that's that's stuck in his cross you know, motivation, wherever you can find it, motivation can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Rafa, you have a quote for me. Mm -hmm. My okay. quote's very similar to yours and on the same kind of theme, right? About failure. So failure is not the opposite of success. It is part of success. And that was from Ariana Huffington. 
So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it mirrors um, a lot of what I just said uh, or, or what the quote from Jordan tells. It's, it's failure is, is most of the time inevitable for, you know, a big success. Now, there might be some people listening. It's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't fail. Okay. But there's a lot of things that I do that I don't fail at either, you know, but there are things that we try and we failed at. And, but you know, we don't look at it like the people who, you know, like Jordan or winners at the end of the day, it's a failure, but then they just keep going and they keep going and they keep going and they fix it. They try to see, well, what do they do wrong? Why did that happen? Or, or what do I have to do differently? You know? And, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just part of success. Well, I think people see, like you mentioned about the end result, you know, see how amazing an athlete is specifically or or someone maybe a celebrity in business they don't see the plight in order to get there in this and the repeated failures and you know to get to that place so I believe that you know people have to face fear of failure in order to be successful and often I work with people in therapy too to let them know to correct some of their thinking on people mistakenly believe that just because they failed at something that they are inherently a failure And a more realistic way of looking at these situations is that they fail to meet a goal. So I try to help them see that people are not failures. So I think that is in line with your quote, too. All right. We have a Q&A. Mm-hmm. So first question, Dr. Raffa, how does one become a sports psychologist? So this um, was a good question because I kind of had to check. I had an idea of what it entails to become one. But, you know, you get a degree in psychology. I believe a master's degree might be fine in clinical and counseling psychology. And I think some programs have a sports psychology program. But most of the time, it is a postdoctoral specialization in a particular area. And also, as with most things, it's an experiential you know, working in exercise and sports, just liking it and watching 30 Super Bowls doesn't make you, you know, a sports psychologist. So you have to have direct practice and some training in it to become a sports psychologist and be able to ethically advertise yourself that way. So that's according to the APA, the American Psychological Association's criteria. All right, cool. So what would you say are significant examples? What significant examples are evident when using CBT within the realm of sports psychology? So what I've noticed, I find CBT everywhere. I don't know if you notice it now that I've kind of like, you know, talked with you and enlightened you on the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. Just see it threaded everywhere. Well, specifically with mind over matter type of situations, you know, like people's mental toughness, people's mental limiting beliefs get in the way of their ability to perform. They can say, I am a terrible player. I'm not good at something. They really focus on their weaknesses. So the narratives and the messages that they give themselves really can get in the way of how they perform, as well as certain sports, I think, really help people to practice lots of different psychology skills that we can get into as well. So I know that you were a coach. What sport did you coach? Well, I coached a little bit of basketball. I coached uh, actually um a season of uh, freshman football. That w- that was a fun experience because I never coached football before. I never played football. And that was so. That's. I always thought that you know, obviously, if you play the sport, you know, you would become a better coach. And I think for the most part, that is true. Mm-hmm. I don't think Belichick played it down in the uh-huh. NFL, but still, <laughs> most of the time that's true, I guess, right? So, um, or even in college, I don't even believe, but mostly tennis. Tennis was my favorite uh, mm-hmm. sport to coach. I played it. I coached both boys and girls for 
I guess what, like eight, nine years or so. Oh, it's a long time. Okay. So what did you notice um, as far as any kind of like CBT or psychology as a coach? You know, what did you notice that you had to implement or use? Sure. What I, what I, I mean, as a poor man's sports psychologist, and I think every coach, every parent of a uh, you know, student athlete and, and even, you know, the athletes themselves, they become, you know, sports psychologists mm-hmm. on some level. Right. So, sure. so what I, things that I've noticed, um, first of all, I, I read and stole ideas and asked for advice from other seasoned coaches. One in particular where I teach, uh, there's this one softball coach uh, who is still actually coaching. She's amazing. So I would, I would, again, I would just ask questions, read, steal ideas, take ideas, maybe tweak them. One book that I kept looking at referring to was a book by the, it was called Mind Gym by the late Gary Mack. I found that helpful. And um, so a couple of things I've noticed. Um, so when in tennis, you can't coach during, you have to wait for a changeover, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to, so they play, they play two games and then they change over and then they play two more games and they change. You cannot talk to them until the changeover. However, you can encourage them. Mm-hmm. You can't say, you know, nice shot or shake it off. Like it has to be very, very, you know, or you can get called on it by the other coach or oh, if there's wow. a referee there. Right. So what I would always do is I'd always try to come up with, if I would see maybe somebody, you know, for, for lack of a better term, drowning or, you know, shooting themselves in the foot, mm-hmm. I would you know, come up with little ways to give them a bigger message, but just a little short reminder. So if I would see a player hit the ball into the net and then their body language after that, of course, most people's body language, you know, uh, at that age, you know, is, you know, disgust in themselves or just angst. And so what I would, I would yell is next point. And, you know, because if you lose, you lose a point, you really regret, um, you know, the, that you made the unforced error that you just gave somebody a point and you hit a bad shot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just like you've mentioned before, we've mentioned before is you can only control what you can control, right? Yeah. You, can you control that shot now? No, you can't. It's in the past. And you do not want that mistake to encourage future mistakes, which can happen so often oh, sure. in, in sports, right? especially individual one-on-one sports. Yep. So that message was, again, just a way to remind my player the next point is the one that you need to focus on, not the last point that you just lost. Right. And There's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. At that point. So, um, that was a way, you know, I would also look at your strings to transition, to shake that off and just, you know, find a happy place or think about, you know, to, to, to shake that off and focus on the next point ahead of you. Um, which is easier, listen, which is easier said than done. I, you know, Oh um, yeah. In the moment. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Outside the cage, uh, the tennis cage, you know, it's, it's really easy. Yeah, and yeah. I tell them that I said, you know, I, I didn't make an unforced error all day, you know, oh. but I'm not playing. So it's, it's in the I, moment. Yeah, yeah. I know what they're going through cause I was there, which helps, but what I'm telling them to do wasn't always easy for me either. Well, when I teach people about breathing exercises and mindfulness skills, like it's easier in the office cause they're not under duress, most likely in my office than in the actual like situation. Situation. And that reminds me of that keyword that you said with the uh, next point, um, an exercise with the safe place and happy place where you envision using all your five senses, use mindfulness to really just imagine being in that place in order to tolerate distress. And uh, I like that. I like that that was that you used that back then. You, you were doing CPT, you didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. Another one real quick that comes to mind, and don't worry, I'm not going to bore you with too many, but this next one was, this was something I would tell them, you know, before the match, it would just be about the 
second serve. So, you know, obviously you get two serves, and if you miss them both, that's a double fault. You just basically gift wrap the point for your opponent. And I would, you know, most, you know, sometimes kids would double fault. Then the one double fault could manifest to two, and then three, and then they basically gave a whole game away because they double faulted four times because mm -hmm. they keep, again, just like next point, they keep thinking about that last point or the double fault. So I'm like, okay, so what can we do about this? So, you know, some of them who were more guilty of this than others, I'd say, okay, what are you thinking about? You know, because that first serve, there's not as much pressure, obviously, but then that second serve, it's okay, I need to get this in or else I, you know, it's just, uh, or else I'm going to, you know, lose the point and that's, that's terrible. So I'm like, what goes on in your head? Yeah, what's going through your mind, right? And I stole this idea from Mind Gym. I just tweaked it. So Mind Gym, uh, he tells a story about free throws. Okay. And, um, he, you know, he would say, instead of thinking about, because most of most players, uh, he would help out in the NBA would say, I'm worried about missing it. I'm worried. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. That's what I'm saying to myself. And I guess he, again, how the book mentions it or how he writes it, but he says the brain is thinking about the negative context of miss it. That's right. all the brain hears. So Even though you're saying don't, yeah, you know, and so he would say, think of how the shot is going to look, how the net is going to make that swish or sound, you know, mm -hmm. as it goes through. And so I, I kind of used that with the second serve. I said, okay, well, think about instead of don't miss it, don't miss your second serve. Think about when your opponent hits the return back to you. Is he going to go down the line? Does he like to go cross court on you a lot? Um, does he like to hit little dink drop shots? Like, you know, what are you going to prepare yourself and anticipate? And what that does hopefully did for most of them was now you're you're kind of tricking your brain to not even think about double faulting because you're thinking about the return of serve. Yeah, well, if there's a return of serve, you obviously yeah. didn't double fault. So that's not even, yep. you know, in, in your in your mindset. That also reminds me of the visual imagery techniques, you know, that sports psychologists use. And I, I talk with people about in therapy too, especially uh, athletes themselves or coaches of imagining making that basket, imagine hitting that ball, imagining winning that game, imagine what that medal feels like in your hand and imagine yourself being successful because perseverating on the mistakes obviously gets in the way. And this, by the way, reminds me of something called the Yerkes-Dotson uh, law, actually. Basically what that is, it's a bell curve. And what they found is optimal performance equals a medium amount of arousal. And that correlates with the having some optimal performance. If you have a low level of arousal, fatigue, tiredness, you're really not going to care too much. Mm -hmm. If it's too high and tips over that curve, then it becomes stress and anxiety, especially with those negative thoughts. And then that obviously correlates with a lower level of performance. Mm -hmm. So we want to try to get to that sweet spot. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the, the hot, it's always about the happy medium at the end of the uh -huh. day, which is easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what um, I noticed you said before, you coach both boys and girls uh, tennis. Mm -hmm. what, what gender differences, if any, did you notice when you were coaching both boys and girls? Okay, well, characteristics um, yeah. in, in coaching uh, or what, what they displayed. Well, okay, so the first one is I noticed that with coaching the girls, they were a lot more... Um, willing to be coached. Uh, they would listen. They would, they would, um, implement what accepting, huh? accepting of trying, uh, different tactics that maybe didn't feel uh, comfortable with them, but may, might help them become a better tennis player. And, uh, you know, they would seek advice. They would accept advice. They, they wanted it uh -huh. where most of the guys, especially if they got to be pretty good, yeah. um, you couldn't tell them anything. They knew everything. Uh, um, the ego, the hubris. Yeah. Or... I mean, and no, now when they were beginners, you know, when I got them 
they were freshmen, you know, they were little tadpoles and they were like, they would listen a lot better than they did when they got to be juniors or seniors and they get a couple wins under their belts. And then it's kind of like, I get the eye roll or, and it's like, yeah, I know, you know, I'm, I'm silly, but you know, you need to try, you know, try this or try that. And then they would go back to this, they're doing things their way and okay, well, you might get a different result. You might get the same thing that's been happening the Mm -hmm. last three matches in a row. So that was one thing that I noticed for the girl, for coaching the girls, that was um, easier. Um, Now on the flip side of that coin, I will say this. um, Well, as a coach, I've noticed, and again, this is from my humble eight, nine year career in coaching both boys and girls tennis. So this is just what I've come to find is there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness. And you you need to be confident to be successful in, in anything you do and sports as well. So what I've come to find is I'd rather have somebody, you know, again, happy medium, right? You're always looking for that happy medium. You're always looking for that, you know, so I'm looking for that kid who's very, very confident, but not too much where they're cocky, but then I don't want them to not believe in themselves and don't, they they don't think they can do anything. They're not going to beat anybody. I can't beat her. I can't beat this one or that one. So it's like, okay, if I can't get the happy medium, it's harder to work with you. All right. Mm-hmm. I, if I have to choose between the cockiness and the self-doubt, right. uh, the mm-hmm. person who is just, um, you know, just questions uh, or doesn't believe they can do it and has no confidence mm-hmm. at all, I'd rather take the cocky kid because yeah. I can I can humble them. Yeah, yeah. I can. <laughs> and, and there were some cocky girls, but most of the time that was always a guy. There was mostly the guys were co- over co- co- right. that were cocky. And I could, okay, you know, dial them back. Okay, listen great. I love it. I love it. However, you need to understand, you know, that you're not all that plus tax in a bag of chips. You need to, you know, and, and, and it was easier for me to do that than be a Tony Robbins to a player. And there were some guys that were bad at that too. I mean, but I mean, there's only so much you can do and to be a compulsive cheerleader. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also, I mean, we're focusing on this sport in particular, but like certain types of individuals gravitate towards tennis, uh, perfectionistic, probably, uh, same thing in golf. You know, I've, I know that a lot of people that have tend to have perfectionistic or OCD tendencies will gravitate towards certain sports, I imagine. Right. Well, yeah. And one thing that I, you know, just to say one thing I loved about tennis and sports like it, anything that is one-on-one or, you know, or okay, two-on-two with doubles, but mm-hmm. Is and I'm not. And listen, I love team sports. I've played team sports. I love watching football, baseball, and basketball, hockey. But when you're playing against another person, you win or you lose. You cannot blame that on a teammate. Or you cannot, oh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that I think is you know to watch and also to participate in. A lot of pressure people put on them. Yeah. Well, that with sports psychology, when sports psychology comes into mind, those are the ones who my God, like they have to go through a lot. Right. So, well, there's also the beliefs that, you know, be people that are playing on a team. I let my team down, you know, can have those, those types no, of things. Yeah, no, there is that guilt. There is that, mm-hmm. um, feeling with team sports that you don't get with individual sports. So I, I, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll grant you that. But the fact that what I can do, you know, with tennis, with, with, uh, boxing, uh, wrestling, whatever it is, but that's one-on-one, what I do to you can affect what you can do to me mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's intense. It is intense. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a, a child that's really uh, into in sports and different sports. So did you ever have any moments where your psycho- 
psychology or background in psychology came into uh, came in handy uh, sure. as a sports as a as a as a you know a sports psychologist uh, for your son. And um, he, what was he? He was in uh, wrestling. Or he did a lot of sports. He okay. did wrestling. He did football. He did martial arts, um, flag football. You know, in there too. But he uh, surfing, snowboarding, lots of different stuff. He's a busy guy. But wrestling, he started when he was five, and he's twelve now. So seven years of being a psychologist slash wrestling mom. Right. And I have to tell you, I know I'm biased, but I believe wrestling is the best sport ever. And the reason I am biased towards it is because of all the psychology weaved in. Anybody who wrestles really has to deal with their uh, one-on-one, obviously against the other person. They not only have to learn techniques of wrestling, they also have to just tolerate distress uh, in a what five-minute match or so. I forget how long they are. But they have to strategize kind of like a chess game, figuring out what they're going to do when their opponent does this or does that. And all the while staying calm, mm. breathing while there's literally a person on top of them trying to get out of the, um, you know, the um, position that they're in. And, and Not to mention um, all the screaming. Uh, oh my gosh. It's like so crazy noisy. parents. Crazy parents on the, on the mat. The coaches are really loud. And there's a bunch of matches going on simultaneously in a huge room, often an auditorium and all the, the people there. It's super noisy. It's hot. And also the confidence to go out there with that singlet <laughs> that doesn't look good on anyone. Although sometimes you have a choice to wear shorts which is fine. But one of the things that, you know, get in the way, of course, are limiting beliefs and um, distortions that people had about them uh, themselves in wrestling. And I think it's a great sport to build self-confidence. And also there's uh, beliefs with gender. You mentioned before about gender. My son had to wrestle a girl, <laughs> girls a couple of times, which is amazing to see girls in wrestling. Mm-hmm. And he, there was, um, I don't know if it was a tournament or a match. He was afraid to. And, you know, we told him like, you, you need to just treat her like yep. another dude. And, and she, she schooled him, man. She, he was really good. Well, yeah. It wasn't because he was like, oh, crap, I can't hit a girl. It was because she was very, very good. But that could get in the way. And that often would with some of the boys, and especially him. I am wrestling a girl, and I, I was taught not to hit girls or be mean to girls or be tough with girls. And Right. Well, you know. I mean, you know, we're conditioned to hold the door for these people, right? Mm-hmm. But now now I'm going to try to, you know, compete against them, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's uh, that must have been, especially for a child, that must have been tough to... It was like, yeah, because kids are very black and white, very concrete. They think of things in categories, you know, and actually one of the limiting beliefs he had was about his uh, strengths and weaknesses. So he was always really scared to take a shot. So that is a, you know, a technique in wrestling where it's, you start off from the bat being, you know, aggressive and he was just so afraid of it and he wouldn't do it. And he had to get over that hump working with us and working with his coaches. A shot is going for like a certain move or, or to, to put them in a compromising position. Uh huh. Yeah, it is. It's like basically like, um, you know, attacking, so to speak, it's okay. like attacking the legs often or the courts, taking the other guy down. And he wanted to be in the defensive stance where he would counterattack and do a sprawl instead. And he would say, mom, um, he's going to sprawl on me. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, you got to learn to do it. And I was trying to teach him at the tender age of seven, you know, mm-hmm. um, to get over some of these beliefs and also to accept and work with his strengths and weaknesses rather than getting mad at them. And he had some phenomenal coaches to help him to do that. And also helping him to see that, um, reframing his thinking that mistakes are opportunities rather than failures. And the sooner that one can accept that, the better they are at performing. And he did really well. Uh, we worked really hard with him to get over that and also imagine Imagining winning, you know, was really important and wanting it more than the other guy. And he ended up getting first place in one of his tournaments and he deserved it. He totally deserved it that day. Yeah, you must have been very proud. I was. Absolutely. 
that's you know that's something uh, with parents I've noticed they can be uh, the biggest ally or they can be uh, a detriment to uh, mm-hmm. a student athlete because uh, in any sport uh, especially that one because I'm sure that, that they're like the crazy parents oh my gosh yeah screaming, screaming on the and, and then the coaches too yeah and uh, you know and I mean all and before the match even they're, they're probably putting this this you know ridiculous amount of pressure on top of the pressure they already have or if they lost them I saw parents screaming at their kids you know yeah. afterwards and kids crying it yeah. was very very common it was heartbreaking I would see that um, again. Every, every sport, I'm sure, has oh, yeah, has definitely. those parents, and and I would say especially wrestling. But I mean, in tennis, I would see it. I had a I had a time when a moment when um, I'm playing. We're playing against a team, and they had a they had a really good number one player. And because I would follow on the paper, and I would see, okay, he's beating guys that my number one is losing to. So my number one's going to have a tough, um, you know, a tough uh, tough road. Uh, Mike Diola, uh, if you're out there, it was uh, Mike, Mike Diola's playing against his kid, and mm-hmm. um, the kid the kid um i forget his last his last name was like a tomasello or T- tamiano or something it was it was a, it was an italian last name and his father was there and his father was you know speaking a lot of italian i assume maybe he was from there maybe not but you know he was and again he might have been coaching his son which is not allowed but mm. I, you know i i maybe i should know more italian than i do but i don't so mm. but but i but so i noticed that this kid is not coming out of the blocks quick enough against you know diola my number 1 and it's a very close match and maybe his father doesn't think it should be so mm. his father is you know just you know constantly constantly not screaming but you hear him chirping you know, um, outside the cage on his side, and I can notice the the body language of the kid, and it's his sulking. He's mm-hmm. you know because his father is letting him hear it. Like, mm-hmm. why are you why are you uh, tied with this kid? He's not as good as you, and you you know whatever. And of course, you know my my guy's like, hey man, like I'm he's feeling good. He's not got no pressure, and he ends up winning the set. You know, mm-hmm. so you know parents have helped me and hurt me, and that parent helped me. You oh know? yeah, or they email you maybe afterwards, and you have to go through explaining to them why you did or didn't do something perhaps, you know, Hmm. um, well, yeah, I've, I've, um, well, this one was (laughs) with basketball. I had one, so there was one, I coach girls basketball and I just remember this is one in particular father who every time his daughter caught the ball and I were running a play. You know, so maybe she has the shot, maybe she doesn't. <laughs> but she gets as soon as she her hands touch touch the ball, we would hear shoot the ball, and I'm like, <laughs> no, and yeah, and she and I I felt bad because she did hesitate because yeah, yeah. that's her dad and her dad. You know, you listen to your parents, right? But yeah, yeah. Mm, not, not right now. Not <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's yeah. so funny. So I think just like we talked about with the anxiety disorders and de decatastrophizing with the what ifs, what if I lose, what if this happens, having a coping plan, identify what thoughts are getting in the way. Also identifying I'm a wrestler, I'm a tennis player versus I wrestle. Um, really, you know, believing yourself of that is important too. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I would throw that in there. Like if I'm trying to get somebody to, uh, say, attack the net and it's out of their comfort zone, what's the worst, you know, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Um, yes. You know. And what would you do then? Sure, fine. Yeah, exactly. Classic. Yeah, yeah. So you were a CBT. I tell you what, I think I was. I, I, I should have, um, you know, I should have uh, upped my rate. I didn't ah, know it at the time. So yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So I'm excited because... Uh-huh. You have a game for me today. I do. Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm leading the game today. Okay. Uh, we're going off course. You know, I know it's a little crazy and all, but this is what I had in mind. 
So I'm not going to go through all of these because there's like 48 of these and that would be ridiculously okay. long. But I'm going to give you a background on someone who failed throughout their life, but became you know successful and were able to achieve. In the realm of sports? Uh, or just in general? Just in general. Okay. I mean, I'll help. No, no, that's fine. A little bit, you know, and some of these you might know just based on the background. So it's kind of like, who is this person? And it's supposed to be inspiring for, hey, this person failed. Do you want me to give you multiple choices? So, well, or, 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 okay, so how many clues are you going to give me? So if you give me one clue and I think I got it, should oh, I guess? Or how do you, how, how? However you want. Whatever's good for you to set you up for success. Right. So, well, and again, if you give me one and I go, okay, give me another one or give me more. So do you want to go maybe after three? I got to take a, three, yeah. three. You'd rather do that than yeah, give you multiple choice. Uh, well, or if you have multiple choice all set up for me, then let's I do don't. that. Oh, then, okay, then, yeah, I don't, no. let's do, let's do I'd the, have to do that on the fly. Well, no, no, let's do the other one because because what you'll probably do is say the person's name and then I can figure out who the three decoys are by you'll say um and Oscar Wilde and you know and, and then might, I'll be like I might make a face yes and then you'll so know, just like that so clue. let's just go with we'll just do a couple like three clues max and then I gotta come up with a guess yeah okay so I thought this would be fun also letting our listeners know that like again people are not failures they fail to meet a goal they may have made success out of failure. It's trying that is important. Okay. Okay. So when this person was 23 years old, he, he lost his job and he lost his bid for state legislature. Mm -hmm. He lost the bid to become speaker in the Illinois House of Representatives. Illinois. I'm going to say again, I was thinking this, but then you said Illinois, it's a lock. Final answer, Abraham Lincoln. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Abraham Lincoln. Now you didn't give me that question because I'm a history teacher. Um, sort of. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. So it's in the list. He's like number one here. Okay. So, so good. Okay. Not even like intentional. It's just like there are some people in history, not just in psychology. I mean, sports. Okay. And athletes. Okay. So he came, he went on to be somebody pretty important, I'd say, right? Yes, he was. He's uh, on the $5 bill. So that screams importance, I'd say. He's got a monument. He did some stuff. We get off for his birthday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's important, dude. All right. This person. Mm-hmm. He is someone we all know is one of the most brilliant minds to have ever lived. And Ooh. he was once considered a major failure. He did not speak until he was four years old. Mm. He failed to pass the exam for entrance into the Swiss Federal Polytechnic School. Okay. And I, you know what? I read this somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I remember the four-year-old. When, when you said four years old, I go, that rings a bell. So that's uh, that's um, that's Einstein. It is. Yes. Yeah. So he did graduate from university, but he struggled and nearly dropped out. Mm -hmm. And he kind of just wandered around. You know, like he didn't really. He door-to-door -door salesman, I guess, for insurance. And obviously, he did some important stuff as well. So he did not give up. And he eventually spoke. Well, yes. And he won the Nobel Prize in 1921, creating the beginnings of what we know as quantum theory. So this person enrolled with the intention of earning his PhD in English literature, but gave up on his career pursuits and started to draw instead. He was rejected. His manuscript was famously rejected 28 times hmm. prior to being accepted by Random House. And so then eventually... He was, wait, so was a he, writer. Okay, but you said drawing. Yeah, because he was told he wasn't, I guess, a good writer, I imagine. So he okay. did drawing instead. Okay. Yeah. He gave up his career pursuits okay. and started drawing. For, for his English PhD. Mm -hmm. But then he had manuscript, mm -hmm. so he was he's a published... Mm -hmm. Author? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. He was going to get his PhD in English Lit, and then he gave that up to, to be a drawer. Drawer. 
<laughs> yeah. And then... Hmm, this one's... This one might... Okay, let me give you some more. Okay. He sold over 600 million copies of his books, translated into 20 different languages. Does that help? He has a pen name, kind of. Oh, oh, um... Well, no, is it Mark Twain? No. Okay, Mark... Okay, um... Good guess, though. Well, so, I mean, that's a pen that name. Help? He was born in 1904. Does that help? Uh, uh, <laughs> 1904... How about this one? Truman Capote. No, I'm going to give you one more clue. Okay. His first manuscript was, and to think I saw it on Mulberry Street. Mulberry Street. So we're talking, it's Brooklyn or, hmm, boy. Children's? I mean, not children. Okay. Okay. See, now we go. Okay. Okay. So um, it's Dr. Seuss. Yes. Okay. There we go. Dr. Seuss. All right. Yeah. Now, is he really a doctor? Uh, I don't know. If he, that's a good question. Did he get his PhD? If he got his Did he, or, or is that just like I a moniker that they, good question. you know, like Julius Irving uh, is the doctor as well? Oh, right. Dr. You know, Dr. yeah. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. Maybe he did. It doesn't say it in this, actually. Okay. Just curious. Yeah. Did my right. check? No, because it's funny that you said he, he, he gave up his dreams of earning his PhD, but then he ended up being known as Dr. Yeah, Seuss. Dr. Seuss, right. Maybe he got it later. He might have. Yeah. Yeah, I can check. Um, you don't have to check right now. I get back to you on that? Well, right? you know, everybody listening, you, know, you can Google it. You can look and see, yeah. I think he may have. I'm thinking yes. Okay, she's. this is what's going to happen. She's going to check. I'm going to Google She has to. Because I can't not know. Yes. Yeah. And we're all along for the ride, so just no, I won't buckle check. in your seatbelts. No, that's you know fine. Everybody loves it. It's the journey. <laughs> I will check. I multitask and check while we're talking. Okay, that? there you go. All right. By the way, so that's two and one. Uh, that's a loss for me because you went way over I went three. Way over. I stretched yes. over. Yeah. All right. Somebody well. pay a pl- other people. <laughs> the audience playing along is like that was way over three. Mm-hmm. All right. This person born in 1946. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he was in New York in the 70s to pursue his dream of becoming an actor. Although all he did was face rejection, failure, and a string of people telling him he talked funny, walked funny, Schwarzenegger, and couldn't act. No. no. Okay. No, no, no. Okay, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think he walked funny. So, I but I, 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 well, no, the, the, the I heard talked funny, was, and I just jumped. He so. was top heavy, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger, so he could have walked. Funny. Uh, no, yeah, but he was, yeah, okay. All right, let All me right. give you some more clues. Okay, so he, this is sad. It's not necessarily like necessarily. Is this person still alive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he's still alive. He's one of our favorite people, I think. So, all right. Oh, okay. In our generation. He was forced to sell his dog for twenty-five dollars. Okay. Okay. Bill. Yep. Yep. It's Stallone. <laughs> yes. Okay. I love he that story. Was, yes. You knew that story. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Sad. Sure. I didn't even know it. Oh yeah. He was rejected fifteen hundred times by talent scouts, agents, and everyone in the film industry that he could get a meeting with. That is a lot of times. That's there. Insane. Um. There's a YouTube clip. I think I let you watch it a long time ago. Yeah. So anyway, he wrote the script for Rocky, and he he I'm playing I'm playing the title role, and he was in a couple things. I think he was in the Lords of Flatbush or something like that with mm-hmm. with Henry Winkler, of course. So he worked with Fonzie, but he wasn't like a big name, and and a lot of studios were interested in the script, not him. You know, he's like, hey, no, I'm attached to it, mm-hmm. and and so they wanted, of course, you know, they wanted Robert Redford or uh, you know somebody like. 
like that to play mm-hmm. the lead role. And he was persistent. And thank God he, because like, mm-hmm. and like, I mean, because like, he, and the story he says, you know, first they offered me, you know, fifty thousand dollars for the script. I mean, in that way, and, and fifty thousand, that's it. And you're you don't get any royalties, nothing. Like, and then he's then a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And 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 like you said, he's he had to sell his dog. He didn't. And but he said, but one thing he, I love that he said, he goes, I I got pretty accustomed to living without, so I didn't know what I was missing. So right. it was kind. Of, I guess it was kind of a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All that's right. a great story, and that's crazy stats more yeah. than Michael Jordan has. All right, this person is going to be probably very easy because I just you know this story well. But okay. This person was born, maybe not right off the, out of the gate, but he was born in 1901. He had a number of failures and setbacks that included bankruptcy, taking a job in Kansas City local newspaper where he was fired. Walt Disney. Editor, yes. For lacking imagination and having no good ideas. <laughs> oh, and the irony. He, yeah, he has zero good ideas. And I believe he Mouse was his saving grace. Is that right? Yes, it, yes, it was. From yep. the what was it called? The dream, the man's dream, or something. Like that? Uh, one man's dream. One man's dream. Yeah, exactly. So he did pretty well for himself. You know, from what I've um, researched, I, I believe uh, highly underestimated was his older brother Roy was his saving grace for uh, sure. bankrolling all of his crazy ideas and, <laughs> and keeping him from uh, you know uh-huh. ruin. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. He they were a good duo, from what I recall. All right, so I'm gonna do a couple more. How's that? Okay, sure. So, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. I have, we have 48. I'm not going to go. Okay, don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'd be a really long podcast if I do 48. Okay, this person, I'm going to say it differently because then you're going to get it right there. All right, this person. So this is a woman because you said person. No. And every time before you said man. No. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm trying to read into it. I know you are. He got himself a teaching certificate, unable to find any work teaching. He worked for a laundry service while his wife went to work at Dunkin' Donuts writing short stories. Who was writing the short stories? His uh, wife? He did. He did. He okay. Did okay. So his idea from his first book was rejected, and he crumpled it up, threw it in the garbage. Later, his wife retrieved it, and he was able to then you know, become one of the most famous and successful authors of all time, selling 350 million books, and he was unorthodox in writing his books. Now, he... Let me tell you the genre of this person. Unorthodox in writing his books. Oh, by the way, he was rejected so often that he, when he was, when he was younger, I guess he was fourteen. He put all of the rejection letters up on a nail on the wall, and because there were so many, he couldn't have them up on the wall anymore. There was just too many to put on the wall, so he had tons of rejection. Um, he is alive today. And I'm a fan of this individual. I think you may be. My son is horror genre. Oh, 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 Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Stephen okay. King. So I did not know that he had that many wow. rejections. Yeah. Okay. That's absurd. I mean, that's yeah, just, that's just like... I know, it is absurd. Well, I mean, it just goes to show you, like, you know, here are some, I mean... Yeah, it, he was told he sucked. Oh, so yeah, funny. you know, and well, it's look, just... And he, and he had a choice, right? Just like all these people had a choice to say, you know what? I give up. Uh, I do suck in internalizing that belief. I'm not a writer. I am terrible. And then they, you know, they, they persevered instead so that he could have had a very different trajectory. 
if he... You know, just like in sports, and I was talking about the confidence and cockiness thing, sometimes when life gets to that point, mm -hmm. you need to be cocky. Because if you're just confident, you know, sometimes that's just not enough when you constantly... So you just got to... Okay, everybody else is wrong and I'm right. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times, that's not a good way to go about things. Mm -hmm. Maybe, again, again, depending on the individual. But when it comes to your dream or what you, you know, want to accomplish, yeah, mm -hmm. you might... Like, look at this, Stephen King. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And they're, you know, iconic today. This is also a man. I'll, we're going to do some ladies, too. I have a couple in there. Okay. Okay, so this person um, completed his grad degree at the University of Southern California. He set out to make movies. This may be a clue for you. I don't know if you know this history. But it, first movie, THX 1138. A story about a dystopian future. Okay. No. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a film student. <laughs> not a film student. Okay. So one of his famous movies was rejected by United Artists and Universal. It did not deter him from pitching it. 20th Century Fox picked up the script. Okay, I'm going to take a wild guess. George Lucas. Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And do you know what script it was? Uh, I think it was this, this uh, oh God, this sci-fi uh, fantasy genre, this Star Wars. Star Wars uh, thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was. I, so what I love about his story is he directed, oh God, it was a 50s movie. American Graffiti. American Graffiti, yes. And so he did it on a very, very low budget. I guess the studio, uh, what was it, 20th Century Fox? They did not want to do Star Wars, mm -hmm. but they wanted him because they knew he could, you know, stretch a dollar as a filmmaker. And so uh, they said, okay, listen, we got these we got these studio films mm -hmm. that we want you to work on, mm -hmm. okay? So, but we'll do this for you. Since you're obsessed with this Star Wars thing, mm -hmm. we'll let you get this out of your system, make your little passion project, and then get to some real movie making. And, of course, you know, the rest is history. Right, and that's what it says here. Eventually, 20th Century Fox picked up the script later saying that, I don't understand this, the Star Wars, but I loved American Graffiti, right. and whatever you do is okay with me. Star Wars was the highest grossing film of all time, surpassing the then highest grossing in film of E.T. Mm. Now, this next person is a female, and I was really somewhat moved, you know, by, okay. by reading this. Holy cannoli, this, like, plight of this woman. One of the most famous and renowned former failures of our time. Growing up with a tumultuous childhood, dealing with illness of her mother, she attempted to gain acceptance to Oxford University. She failed, was rejected, and instead enrolled at the University of Exeter. She came up with an idea on a train. I, okay, so we're in England. We're in England. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and say J.K. Rowling. Absolutely. Yes. So do you know this? Like, her mom died of, of MS. She was extremely distraught, distressed. She became depressed and suicidal, and she considered herself a major failure. She didn't think she, her manuscript was rejected. I guess yeah, she, again... She managed to finish it, but after one year of trying to get it published, all 12 major publishing houses rejected her book. Yeah, I remember... Yeah, it's a pile on. She was living in a car for yeah, a while. Yeah. She would get these moments where she would just, within the realm of the story that she's working on... Like, by the way, I think that's today's word. I think there's a third or first time I said realm. <laughs> um, but she would jot down ideas on napkins for the story and just, just yeah. you know, and yeah, and it's just good. And it's just like Stephen King, like rejection. And I love that term that you mentioned, former failure, mm -hmm. you know, like that's awesome. You know, like mm -hmm. I'm a former failure, you know, and, and, and wear that, wear that uh -huh. badge of, as a badge of honor. Yeah. Yeah. And she also had, um, 
you know, like the small literary house in London named Bloomsbury gave her the green light of a very small advance of 1,500 pounds in seven years after her initial idea of Harry Potter. By 2004, she became a billionaire. Have you ever been to Universal Studios and, and seen any of the Harry Potter uh, lands they have? Oh, yeah. It's really cool. I'm not a ride person, but I tried it, and it was still really cool. Okay. Despite, so know, this is a great story. Disney wanted to buy the rights to the same thing. They wanted to make you know um, Harry Potter land, Diagon Alley, or, or Hogsmeade, whatever. And I love her passion for her characters and her story because she said, let's talk. I'm open to that discussion. How However, I have creative control over everything within that land. And of mm -hmm. course, Disney doesn't work like that. And mm -hmm. the, the uh, CEO or the powers that be said, no, we have Imagine. And listen, the Imagineers do amazing jobs in their parks. Don't get me wrong. And JK probably even knew that. But at the end of the day, she's like, that's nice. And I'll work with them. But if there's something I don't like, I have final say. I, I can veto anything. And they were like, no, no, we don't work like that. And you know what? And of course, the check probably was ridiculous. And she's like, no. Nah. And then Universal came over, like, we'll work with you. You know, and they, and I think, I, I think the rumor was some of the people at Universal were like, oh my God, she's, she is crazy. She's upset. But listen, she, yeah, she, oh, she has the right to be obsessed and crazy is because well, what she, she went through. Yeah. And also she went through a tumult, domestic violence, I think, you know, with her husband that she was married to and got divorced. So she went through a lot of stuff. I was holding on to that. Like she divorced him after she published the novel, right? Oh, I don't know. I would hope so, because I don't want it. You know, that, that'd be so terrible if she, I, I, I helped you with that. I need some of that. Because, you know, yeah. it's a terrible right. thing. It is terrible when uh, people take half of your business, yes. Okay, so this person we had talked about before, so this might be an easy one for you. Cut from the varsity. Michael Jordan. Okay, well, why'd you do that? I mean, well, come on. Just because I was going to say okay. it. Well, you, you, you know what? You should have started with that. You should have maybe said other things. I was going to. I was going to, but I was too excited about the other things. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know what? Last one. Last one. Yeah, that's, 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 people were hanging in there, and, I, and you know. All right, yes. I'm going to do just one more. Okay. Male or female, does it matter? Whatever blows your hair back. Whatever, whatever uh, you want right. to go well, this one will make sense why I chose this one. Okay. okay. These people, group, considered themselves failure. What do you mean these people? I'm just kidding. Uh-huh. Okay. These group of performers mm -hmm. considered themselves failures and wait these per wait so th this is the group of performers that this person is involved with consider themselves failures the group okay i assume so this is a group we're talking about it's a group oh so okay it's so we're thinking okay so i okay it's, it's a rock band or it's a mm -hmm. musical group okay musical group yeah i didn't want to give you that okay well i mean well you know hey mm -hmm. okay um <clears throat> they played a lot of different places and were rejected five months later the group received the big break they've been hoping for they were discouraged during rejection and failures, but they kept moving forward. I don't have anything other than they're who they actually are. Um, they became one of the most popular musical groups in history. I'm going to go out on a limb with a chainsaw and say, <laughs> oh, I don't know, the Beatles? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? As I'm reading this, because I wasn't planning to do, do them, surprisingly, it doesn't say exactly what the failures were, other than them considering themselves failures. And I remember from the movies, I think they got somewhat, you know, some rejections. By the way, Paul, if you're out there listening, cut. Pete best a check. Like, just <laughs> give him a look. Come on. Give him a little I mean, you know, throw him a mill. Yeah. What is it to you? Uh -huh. Or a couple hundred thousand, maybe. I mean, something. That's it's a sin. They kept pushing. That's a, that is. <laughs> hopefully, everybody knows what I'm talking about. But you yeah. know, Peter Pete yeah. Best was the original drummer, and, and right before they hit it big, I want to research that. How how far away was he from their British invasion of of the United States at Sullivan Show? Probably maybe two years. <laughs> Less. 
and that. I watched all that when I was in my 20s, so I have to... He was replaced by Ringo. And again, what was it because he was a bad drummer, or it was his attitude? No, I think it was something interpersonal. It was something about personality. It was personality? It wasn't because of his drumming. I mean, yeah. Okay, so... Was it over a girl? I don't remember. <laughs> it was something like that. I, I don't... We yeah, look, I don't, I don't we know. We have to look a couple things up. And Whatever it was, but I mean, that's a sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just terrible. All right, so let's summarize. What have we learned today, Denise? It sucks to be Pete Best. That's number one. It's great to be J.K. Rowling. It's well, again, you know, <laughs> guess, if, hope, if you're, be, you know what, what I took from this is if you're getting rejected yeah. over and over and over and over again, you are in, you know, people that you are in common with are, oh, I don't know, J.K. Rowling, Stephen King, Sylvester Stallone, Walt Disney. So you're in good company. You may not be to that level, and your goals could be your goals, but really, it's about persevering and not. Not fearing failure. It's not your enemy. Try to think of it as your friend. Mm-hmm. Maybe fail a little bit on purpose. That'd be crazy, right? Do some intentional failing. Doesn't mean that you are. And this could be in everyday life, not just in sports psychology, but in, you know, day to day. Absolutely. All right. So thanks for listening to our show. Catch all of our episodes and more at www.innerbalancepsychology.com or talktherapycbt.com. Email us if you have any questions at info at innerbalancepsychology.com. And remember to stop it and give yourself a chance.